All views and opinions expressed in this podcast may lead to learning. All information provided is for educational and developmental purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for a growth mindset. Before taking action, please consult your motivation. Uh, so yeah, we'll end it there, I suppose. Thanks, guys. Uh, as you know, this episode was inspired by... Sorry, Mike, go ahead. No, I just went... Oh, sorry. <laughs> I just wanted to say thank you. <laughs> that's all right. That's, that'll go in the blooper reel. That's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we'll sign off there, guys. Thanks, guys. That was great. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Oh, wow. You came from Canada? That's a long way. Gosh, I can't believe you've come all this way for a conference. Oh, my God. All the way from Canada? No. All the way from Toronto for the weekend? Oh, you picked the best conference? It's fantastic. You came all the way from... Canada? <gasps> Welcome to Teacher Talking Time, brought to you by Learn Your English. Learn Your English is a company that is changing the way people study, learn, and teach languages. Learn Your English offers students and teachers strategies to effectively develop their abilities and skills in their own time. Bringing you the latest in English language learning and teaching, Teacher Talking Time explores all angles for teachers and students alike. Got a question? Comment? A story to share? Send us an email at info at learnyourenglish.com. This is the Teacher Talking Time Podcast. Hi there. My name's Scott Thornbury. I'll be speaking at the IH uh, EOT conference, and my topic is performance, uh, specifically towards a performance-based uh, pedagogy. And I'm going to sort of look at the notion of performance through various perspectives, performance contrasted with competence, uh, in terms of what we know about a language, what we know versus what we can do with it, uh, but also performance literally as theatre, as acting, as embodiment. And I'll be arguing the case that uh, a methodology that incorporates performance will be one that focuses very much on language and use and also a more holistic approach to language use and language learning. That is to say, a pro an approach that incorporates the whole body. So I hope you uh, come along and I hope you enjoy it. Hey guys, I'm Sophia Shanahan from Venezuela, living in Canada, and you're listening to Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast. All right, so today we're going to be talking a little bit about um, uh, a presentation that we saw at the ELT conference in Barcelona in February. Andrew and I were there, and it was... Um, it was a plenary by Scott Thornbury, and he talked a little bit about a performance-based approach to language teaching. And he talked a little bit about, you know, all the research, all the literature on second language acquisition and all that. And we're going to explore perhaps um, a little bit of this presentation, not everything. But I would like to start off by asking you two a very important question. How do we know that students have learned a language? Oh, that's a good question. Oh, man. Whew. Well, they repeat everything we taught them, right? 
<laughs> they repeat it back. Yeah, exactly. Mimicry, yeah. How do we know uh, well, they've learned a language? Um, yeah. I, I mean, philosophically, I don't, I don't think that's possible. You know, how do you to learn a language in its entirety? I mean, a language point, perhaps, to be able to, to perform it, to be able to produce it, to be able to um, use it in the context in which they need it for. But those are all very abstract concepts, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, that last point, Andrew, is kind of what I tend to focus on. It's basically, okay, so... They've, they've, as a learner, I would think, you know, I've, I've learned this grammar point. Um, can I actually use it in a particular situation when I'm required to kind of draw on that knowledge? Um, and I guess as a teacher, it's providing opportunities to, to create that, uh, opportunity. So they have to kind of reproduce some of the language we've taught. I mean, I agree with both, um, your opinions. And, and it's true, Mike. We can, we can definitely assess our students using formative, um, continuous or summative assessments, but how do we know that students will actually be able to use their language or the language that we have taught in real life and in authentic situations? So that's one of the things that we're going to be talking about today. In short is how do we know that our students are actually competent in, in the language that we're teaching? I guess one of the ways we can, we can judge this um, competency is through their performance. But how do we know that performance is an accurate measure of what students actually know? So today, hmm. we're going to be looking at a little bit into this. So I'm going to start by asking you another okay. question. Both of you, what is the difference between com- competence and performance? Yeah, that's funny because I was just going to ask you your <sighs> definition of performance. Um, but I won't because you threw it back at us now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to do the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean... Performance is an interesting word because there's lots of connotations that go with it, right? Mm. When we think of, when I think of performing, I always think of, of, I don't know why, but I always think of the theater, people on stage performing um, out of character almost. Mm. Um, although I know that's not quite what you're getting at, you know, performing a language. Um, but I, I don't know, my question, I guess, are there similarities between performing as a character and performing as a language um, or in a language? But I guess performing for me would be just very simply students using the language and that's okay. and that's where i would leave it yeah yeah and i was just add same uh and in, in real life performing a task right mm. you know actually um automatizing the language or okay. uh, you know producing it in, a, in an authentic situation to use your words yeah. so basically procedural knowledge that's what we're talking about here. yeah yeah like i think basically so. how how the knowledge is actually realized in as you said mike in the actual language use um, basically knowing how to do something, how to make a phone call, how to how to um, ask for directions, things like that. Okay, so so we've isolated performance. What about competence? I mean, to be, I think of it as to be competent in something, language or, or whatever, um, mm-hmm. means that you have the knowledge to do it. So if I'm thinking about language, does that mean I have the, the knowledge of, but see, with, with we don't think of language as something that you... You learn about and then you can do it, right? We know that's not how it works. So can I learn about the language and then I can go out and I can perform it? I, it's unlikely. Um, <laughs> so is that, am I off base? Is that kind of, I don't know, Mike can chime in first, but that would be yeah. my first thought. That's Yeah, that's weird. There was a, I think I was watching an online Japanese lesson and, and uh, the, the guy was talking about how you can have professors who are experts in a language, but not able to say, speak it fluently or or use it or perform oh. in the language. So mm-hmm. that kind of 
comes to mind where where mm. where you're you're knowledgeable but you're not actually able to to do it. Well, don't um, we have we have a lot of we have I wouldn't say a lot. We have students come to us from time to time, and they they mention to us about their professors in their undergraduate programs, and they talk about how they think the class isn't that engaging and the professor is boring, et cetera, et cetera, on occasion, right? And I know we I've heard you guys have this chat, and I've done the same thing where we talk about you know what the roles of of a professor and and all these types of things, and the role of a professor largely is you know research and writing and and the and methods and these types of things and teaching is only one aspect of it so even with a, a vast knowledge base in a, in a topic it doesn't mean someone's going to be a good teacher and vice versa right someone could probably be a good teacher or at least engaging in the classroom without a lot of knowledge so maybe that displays that example as well and i don't want to get really off topic but it was so interesting i was having a conversation <laughs> with a prospective well a, a, a potential future teacher and um and i think that even in the, the this person was a, I know I shouldn't say this, well, a native speaking, you know, teacher, mm-hmm. native speaker. And um, I think yeah. it was like their their own opinion that, that in some ways that knowing or being able to speak the language, therefore means that it was, they were able to teach the language without kind of needing a CELTA course or a some sort of a pre-service course. My point being, mm. um, just because you um, know a lot of information or you know does it mean actually that would be the opposite so maybe i am getting yes no no you're uh, you're right on it you're right on yeah 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 i like what andrew was saying but uh, i think maybe i've reversed it there because they can (laughs) they can perform yes you can reverse my words anytime you want that's all right Uh, i tell you (laughs) they can perform in the language but they are not competent in the language they don't have the what we call the declarative knowledge right the the idea that you're not able to verbalize to a student how the passive voice is formed, for instance. Exactly. Yeah. So, but is it different? Sorry to interrupt. Is it different in language than in other things? You know, I don't think so. Like, would you say someone so. is competent in uh, football? So, Cristiano mm. Ronaldo is, is a competent football player. It's a good question. Um, no. I think he probably mm. has some of the. And um, doesn't that refer to skill when we say that well, performance? Yeah, you know, we wouldn't say he's he's book smart about football uh, and though I'm sure he is about his tactics and but things. he understands the game he understands positioning he understands the rules so he possesses this psychological or mental property um, and he's also because he has that sort of knowledge he's also able to execute that and that's what translates into the performance I would mm-hmm. say um, you know what would be interesting is to ask mm-hmm. and they probably have been asking I just have no idea but to ask all of these star athletes if they believe that they are at the level they're at because they studied the game and then played it or the reverse played the game and then studied it hmm. uh, a good coach would probably have done both because mm-hmm. you can't really explain strategy which would be the competence aspect the declarative knowledge to the players so they could actually go into the field and then perform in the way that he expected them to perform so, yeah, that's what I was thinking too. It might depend on the role, particular role within the football team or soccer team, mm. um, and that might that might vary, right? I think the your example of the coach is, is quite good there. Well, I want to talk about Chomsky because this actually in the presentation Thornbury brings this um, notion of competence versus performance. Okay, let's move on now. Looking at performance as usage now, um, Chomsky very famously. Uh, 
in the 1960s made a distinction between in terms of what a language learner knows and what they actually do with that knowledge. So he made a distinction between competence. Competence as this idealized. Yeah, so what the speaker or the hearer knows about the language and performance, what how that knowledge is realized in real life concrete situations. And he describes competence as this idealized capacity that is located as a psychological or mental property or function. In performance, on the other hand, is the production of actual utterances. And it's a very, it's been a basic distinction in linguistics for very, very many years that competence and performance are not necessarily the same thing. So in short, competence involves knowing um, the language and performance involves doing something with this, with the language. So does that help? Yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. True. So the difficulty for us now is with this construct is it's very difficult to assess competence without assessing performance. <laughs> How would you go about doing that? To assess one of them and not the other well, one? Yeah. How can we assess competence without assessing performance and vice versa? Well, I think competence is assessed all the time. And, I, and you know, I don't say that I like the way that we do it, but you know, I have a written test about grammar and stuff like that. I mean, that's mm -hmm. assessing their, you know, what tense should be used here, A, B, C, or D, you know, and they pick one and that's their yeah. competence knowledge about, about it. But then you ask them to produce it in whatever context it is and they, they may be able to do it, but that mm -hmm. not it's not linked. I wouldn't say it's linked to their ability to do that competence test. They're, they're independent. That's good. Yeah, you see, you see that a lot with things like parts of speech and word form, mm -hmm. right? My question to you then is, why is it important for us to make this distinction between competence and performance? I think it's important that we need to be able to know what we're doing and what we're doing in the class as a teacher, right? So am I doing something that's competence-based or am I doing something that's performance-based? And mm -hmm. by knowing that, not just going along for you know what we usually do and as you say, Leo, all the time, what do we do? Or why do we do what we do? And looking at that intrinsically and then thinking, okay, well, maybe I have too much competence-based activities here. I need to focus more on performance if that's what I've decided I wanted to do. Yeah, I think that that's the key question, right? Is what's, you know, what's the purpose? Why am I doing this? What do I want my students to achieve as a result of having this either um, declarative knowledge? Yes. I'm, I'm just thinking about every time you as a native speaker of, of a language, of a native speaker of English in this case, if you make a mistake or if you say something that is, let's put it this way, it's incorrect. Let's say, for example, my son the other day said, I braked the, the TV, hmm. for example. And my daughter immediately said, no, 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 you broke the TV, right? So is this error due to competence or performance? <laughs> That's interesting. Um, I, I would venture to guess your son knows broke is the past tense. And it's break, just a yeah. slip, right? Yeah. So I don't even know if that's an error. Yeah, it could just be a slip. Yeah. yeah. No, he, he makes that error quite some, like I'd say a few times. Okay. Um, I think it's because he's in that st stage of development where he... He used to say, he, he, I think it's what Mike, you probably remember this, is the, the, the generalizing hypothesis when uh, you say, um, I watch TV, I played video game. So you, re, you think that all verbs are regular. Are regular. So you add an ED. Yeah. So you, you hypothesize that break 
would be would follow suit and you probably say i break the tv so it is most likely that as a native speaker you're probably aware how to conjugate irregular verbs in the past but your performance has let you down this time i mean we all do this sometimes we're, we're having a conversation with someone and we have these slips of the tongue you know mm-hmm. so what i'm thinking is they i, th- I think what thornbury was trying to to, to uh, discuss or to actually bring about in his presentation was the fact that linguists use this distinction between competence and performance to illustrate this intuitive difference between accidentally saying braked and the fact that a child or or a non-proficient speaker of English may not know that the past tense of of break is broke and they would say braked consistently I think that's that's what he was trying to, to accomplish with, with this. So I guess your question then, Leo, is from the teaching perspective, if you put your son into one of our classes, for example, mm-hmm. it's our job to be able to determine if that student is making that quote-unquote error because they really don't know what the past tense of the verb is yeah. or if they're making a slip. Well, yeah, because it goes back to the idea that not everything that is taught is actually learned. Mm-hmm. So let's think about this when when we ask students when we put them under the um, constraints of a PPP approach and we ask them to produce um, to practice the language so let's say they're practicing let's say the past simple we're teaching a lower level class and you're teaching them the press the past simple and you go through the controlled practice and they're able to do the gap fills and you do some drilling they're able to do that and then the moment you give them a more freer task where they're actually used to perform, we're actually expected to perform, that's when they make that mistake. My question is, is that a mistake of competence or performance? That's the question I'm asking. And I don't know the answer to that question, to be honest. Mm, that's a tough one. Yeah, that's a, it's a good point for discussion, I think, because, you know, I'm, I'm not sure how or why, or maybe you have more insight on this, how, you know, the, the ESL classroom, ELC classroom has turned into or the the app, you know, not the app, but the, the way that we conduct classes traditionally is unlike what we're preparing them for when they leave the classroom, you know, yeah. where it should we, we should be setting them up for more performance based, task based situations, yeah. because mm. when you do a PPP approach and you get to the third P and that's not the majority of the lesson, of course, there's going to be mistakes because they're not giving them enough time to actually use the language or talk in the language as we say as, as opposed to about the language so right. if there were more time for them to produce like in the real world those errors or slips or whatever most likely would decrease no but then it goes back to what mike and i were talking about earlier um when you if you think about this a lot of our a lot of the programs have focused more on the knowing the competence part of learning a language right so if you look at ppp all you're doing is you're focusing on the competence and then you expect them to perform at the end of that. Mm-hmm. When we look at task-based learning, and Mike will agree with me on this, is you actually bring performance to the forefront. You start with the performance and then you deal with, with the errors reactively as they, as they arise in during the performance and then you expect them to perform again. But this time they should be a little more um, aware of those mistakes therefore they're they're mm-hmm. less likely in theory to avoid those mistakes mike yeah and I, and I no i would just add and without that repetition i mean repetition is key the the you know the big drawback of the ppp as andrew pointed out is that you're getting to it at the end and often there is no 
chance to go back and redo that activity. So mm -hmm. it's hard to a see if it's a genuine mistake or a, a sorry an error or a slip or a mistake. Mm -hmm. um, and then if if it is an error, then to as Leo just said, uh, how to bring up the focus on forms and to um, sorry focus on form and uh, and and address that. So. I would just argue along with Leo that it's it's important to make sure that you get to a stage where your students are performing mm -hmm. and then giving them that second second chance to go back and repeat that same activity where they have the opportunity to then apply that new knowledge and uh, and again should should it be necessary um, later on in a course or in a future lesson insert some redundancy so that you can then again go back and have them produce a similar task that would again, ask them to draw on this knowledge that you've you've taught them already. So I think repetition, both within a lesson and, and uh, across lessons is quite important if you're trying to evaluate both um, uh, competence and performance. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. You know, quality professional development is such an important part of the teaching industry, but it's surprisingly hard to come by. That's why I was so pleased to come across Learn Your English, a company providing online teacher education courses with a fresh perspective. My name is Erin, and I'm an English language teacher. After a decade in the classroom, I found myself teaching the same things in the same way. My learning seemed to have plateaued. I wanted to take charge of my learning, and I really like how the online Learn Your English courses don't prescribe anything. They motivate me to reflect on my teaching and propose tactics and ideas I hadn't considered. If you're a language teacher wanting to learn inside your busy schedule, I highly recommend their online courses on Thinkific. Head on over to lyenetwork.thinkific.com. That's lyenetwork.thinkific.com. Take control of your education. You won't regret it. Hello, my name is Victor. I'm from Husqvarna in Sweden. You're listening to Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast. I was just thinking about when, because I'm, I'm thinking about our curriculum, the, the places where we work at, and like, do you find that the curriculum or, or the syllabi is designed in a way where we're emphasizing performance or competence? Again, when we look at competence, the assumption is that once the learners have learned the information that we have exposed them to, they will be able to use it through, um, you know, writing and, and speaking. And again, it's this assumption that, you know, learners are going to, they know the language, they have acquired some sort of de uh, the, de the declarative knowledge about the language. The problem we find is that they are actually not able to do the thing with the language so it's it's not the idea of learning by using it's the idea of learning and then using so it's it's i find that this is the issue that we have with a lot of of the curriculum and, and the syllabi in in language teaching yeah i, I just think that it, again it comes back to as you said learning through doing and the fact that it's in many cases you they might learn say for example how to write a complex sentence totally out of context and then they submit a paragraph to you later on in the term or semester, and you you, you say, well, you didn't use complex sentences in your paragraph, yeah. and it's not the student's fault. It's because we didn't actually show them the yeah. relevance in terms of 
how a complex sentence could be used in, say, an academic paragraph to either evaluate or to link ideas or to to um, even to even signal um, or, uh, a link between an example and a an evaluation or something. So again, it's a it's we teach them the declarative knowledge, mm-hmm. and then we ask them, as you said, Leo, we teach them it, we ask them to produce it. But if it's totally out of context, it's impossible. It had, the two have to be taught together at the same time. It's, yeah. Andrew? Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm going to answer the question, but I'm going to ask you another question first. Mm. <laughs> have you ever sat in on a young learner's class? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's drastically different, right? Yes. Why? Yes. Well, there's no competence, right? They're not really um, giving – I mean, you can't really teach grammar to kids because they don't have the cognitive ability to process a lot of the – the the knowing the competence part of learning well hang on a minute can't teach them grammar i know i know what you mean but well they can perform it no they can perform they can perform and i i feel like the less i'll tell you i'll give you my own experience i taught i think it was my second year teaching and i was asked to supply teach a young learners class and i just walked in and i started teaching grammar and i could see the look of horror in the kids faces because they just had no idea what I was doing. And I also had absolutely no idea what I was doing. <laughs> and I think it was by far one of the worst experience I've ever had teaching a class. And that day I told myself, I'm never going to teach young learners. It's actually something that I should start doing eventually. Right. But and there yeah. are all, all this research and all these studies about how kids until this age learn like this and kids until this age learn like this and then adult learners, yada, yada, yada. Right. Yeah. I really do believe languages are learned very similarly across the board. But if you go into yeah. a classroom, adult learners versus young learners, whatever age you want to apply, it looks and is carried out and executed drastically differently. Yes. And not to be, and maybe it's not being cynical, but but maybe it has to go back to the ELT as a business argument or a statement where with children, you're not going to say to them, you know, what did you learn today? Check, 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 check. Right. Whereas with adult learners, Perhaps mm. there's a, a sentiment where if we do a performance-based only or dominant classroom with lots of tasks without rationale, because I think a lot of teachers don't rationalize what they do. Not that we need to rationalize it, but why not say, hey, we're doing this today. This is why we're doing it. And this will be the outcome of it. I think they'd appreciate that. But if that's not carried out in the class or not done, then they might go to the school and say, hey, I didn't learn anything today, quote unquote, even though they did. But adults uh, were, were much more cognizant of what we're learning right and can i actually I, I jump in and i would say that i'm actually quite and i think it goes back to what you said andrew about making it clear i'm quite critical because i think a lot of the students that i teach or have taught uh, the adult students anyways would say that they that if they if, if a teacher were to say present uh compound complex sentences or complex yeah. sentences um they would leave the lesson thinking that they know it the unfortunate thing is that it's mm-hmm. not coming through in the performance so yes Yes, they have it, but um, they don't know how to use it. Apply. Yeah. You see this a lot with passive voice. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, I think Parrot uh, and his uh, always grammar- a passive voice. Well, well, no, right? Because I know when they don't know it, they never use it. And once yeah. once students do acquire it, they want to overuse it. Overuse and, it exactly. And in academic writing, they enter a class, and the EAP instructor says, "Oh, just remember that we only use active voice in in uh, academic writing," which is not true. There's a time and place for act- for passive voice. And I think without, it goes back to um, teaching through practice. Without teaching mm-hmm. through practice, you're never going to have them develop those noticing skills and then help, which will therefore help them make those choices 
in the future? You know, why are we using passive in this sentence and not in the next one? And, and so on. And how does a sentence used in passive yeah. um, fit in with a much larger uh, paragraph, right? Or, or section of a report, for example. So Absolutely. Um, I, I think you're right, Andrew, but I think it's disappointing that a lot of students would leave that class saying, wow, I just learned complex structures. I never knew that before. Isn't that great? And um, But I think we're not doing a good enough job showing the whole picture where yeah. an individual structure fits into, a, say, a macro um, situation or text or or something. Sorry, mm -hmm. Leo. I, no, no. Um, I just wanted to add one more thing to the, to the question that Andrew posed is that I think the knowing is what sells. The competence part of learning, like I learned the yeah. present perfect, I learned the past simple. This is why we're <laughs> yeah. still... This is why we're still stuck in uh, structural syllabus because that's yeah. what sells. I was actually having a conversation with someone today and she told me that they're trying to move away from a structural um, grammatical syllabus and towards a more synthetic um, task-based syllabus. But the director of the program said, I can't go back to said country, let's say China, Japan, whatever country um, they're going to recruit students and say that we don't have a grammatical textbook because in those parts of the world, English the knowledge has become commodified so it's it's not the focus is not anymore Mike as you said on the doing part of the learn of learning it's more on the knowing part of learning and students are under the impression that if they learn a complex sentence they are actually learning but again as you said that's a very small picture they're not we have to we have to elevate our perspective and see things from from well, maybe take a world view here and look at where do these language points, where would they fit in a, in a, in a macro structure and so forth. Anyway, I, I just, sorry, just to finish off, like I think back to my, my own Japanese learning and, uh, and people often ask me, you know, what level are you? But I don't know because, because in Canada, I mean, I, I would have to measure it based on the grammatical structures I right. know. And can do. But I can't yeah. use them in Canada. But if you put me in Japan, in the Nizakaya, <laughs> give me a beer or two, then, you know, I could be oh, as, high as, you, as high as I need to be, right? Um, so it's, it's yeah, I, like, you, like you said, Lee, I, I would totally agree with that. It's um, competency sells, um, but really, uh, you know, in terms of language acquisition, you know, meaningfulness and the, the, the ability to, to, produce in a situation is uh is really key and Sorry, isn't it isn't it funny on. you know like all, i think this makes so much sense and yet there's not at least in north america not a lot of places that actually do it you know and and this competence-based stuff i think leads itself to a lot of students maybe not a lot but some you know looking at class as class and not an experience or a time to to use the language you know we should do a survey on this asking how many learners if you came to class every day and you knew that you were going to just use the language or work in the language how much of you would come every day probably a very high number well there's a, i have a quote here by um david byrne um in his book teaching oral english in 1976 who apparently is the guy who coined the term um not the term the methodological approach um named uh ppp practice uh, present practice produce or pray um, when, when talking about the production stage he there's a quote that he says that it's a pity that language learning in the classroom so often stops short at this stage many teachers feel that they have done their job well if they have presented the new material effectively and given their students adequate though perhaps controlled practice in it and he goes on to say that 
All the same, no real learning can be assumed to have taken place until the students are actually able to use the language for themselves. So, production. Ooh, I like that. Uh, that's a nice little teaser for the next half of the show here. Why don't we uh, pause, set up our first little break here. And uh, as you guys know, right, Leo and Mike, this we saw Thornbury talk in Barcelona as part of the conference. I think we're big advocates. I think we can agree of going to conferences, not just to learn, but also to meet people and to hear their stories. And I hope we use the podcast as a platform to try and make the teaching world a little bit smaller. So what Leo and I had the chance to do is talk with, meet up with a couple of teachers on the break, at the lunch break at the conference. And this is our conversation with a team of Ukrainian teachers that were there. Uh, and this is their story. So stay tuned for that. Okay, so we're here on the lunch break and we've uh, met some nice ladies from the Ukraine. If you guys can just introduce yourself with your name. Natalie. Natalie. Anastasia. Anastasia. Alina. Alina. Okay. And basically the question is, what sessions did you see this morning? And yeah, what session did you see? Let's start with that. What session did you guys watch this morning? What were your impressions? Can we start with yesterday? We can start with yesterday. <laughs> start wherever you like. I, I don't remember the, the name of the session, but I remember um, the teacher said that even if your students never go abroad mm -hmm. and never get to emerge in other cultures, and uh, it's okay for them because they can discover themselves through other cultures. Mm -hmm. So it's not like, let's not teach other cultures because we'll never travel there. So that's a good Great. point. Okay, good. That was useful. All right. Okay, I attended this morning a session about the difference between observation and noticing and uh, reflecting and reviewing our mm. lessons. So for me it was useful because I could apply it for uh, observation of the lessons of the junior teachers. And usually we try to notice, we try to observe, but we need to learn to notice something. Awesome. We need to develop the skill. Okay, great. Thank you. Natalie? Okay, and mine was, uh, I don't remember the name, but something related to the certification and testing. Mm -hmm. What was nice, the way Cambridge sees tests in general, mm -hmm. how everything is going to change in the nearest future, and what can be done to facilitate students' work, teachers' work, and progress. Awesome. Yeah. And I, all of you have the same tag, right? Green Forest School yeah. in, yes. in Ukraine? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? We're awesome. <laughs> <laughs> we are the biggest, actually the biggest English school in Ukraine. Okay. And we have branches in five cities. Wow. And three which branches. Which cities? Uh, which cities? Lviv, Kiev, the capital, mm -hmm. Kharkiv, Dnipro, Petro, Dnipro Odessa. 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 All right. And who are the students in general? Are they adults? Adults? adults. adults. Yeah. 14. Okay. And over. 100 and over. If you get to live to over 100, yeah. you can come. I had a student <laughs> who was 63 years old. Oh, amazing. Elementary. <laughs> is it general interest or is it for business? General, or is general. It, yeah? general English. Okay. Okay. And only English, no other languages. Okay. Okay. And in Ukraine in general, what is the... The, the need for school, school has five locations, obviously, uh, so it's, it's popular. So, uh, yeah. In Lviv, uh, we have doctors mostly and IT workers, right? Various right now, professions. If you need, want to become a professor, you need to get B2 exam at least. Mm -hmm. So okay. you need to be certified. So it means that everybody needs English. Mostly. And in Odessa, I know. Um, in Odessa, there are lots of uh, marine soldiers, mm -hmm. ah, sailors, okay. sailors. sailors. Okay. 
That's what the owner of the company told us. What? In Odessa. What? Yeah. I have no idea. You know what would sailor English look like? What do sailors need to know in English? First of all, they need to know this English for sailing. Like the aviation, there are some fixed phrases mm-hmm. or communicate, and they need to understand different accents because they usually have people all over the world, not only Ukrainian members, but on from different... I yeah. think they eventually get ashore, so yeah. <laughs> they need to communicate with <laughs> They don't stay on the boat forever? Yes! <laughs> For general interest. Wherever they stop, they need English to communicate with locals. Yeah, that's a good answer. And how long have you ladies been teaching? Around 10 years. 10 years? Yeah. 10 years. 10 years. Five. Five years, all in Ukraine? Yeah. yeah. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Any aspirations to teach elsewhere? Or Here. green forest forever. No. In Spain. In Spain, yeah. Yes. <laughs> I don't know if Here? It's, I don't know if it's uh, okay for a Ukrainian to come to Spain and teach English. I don't know if it's demanded here. Like no there idea. are native speakers, so but so what? Yeah. Yes. Polish people teach. Okay. You, guys, you know yeah, this. It's my passion then. You. First language goal. doesn't matter, right? You know this. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. It's not so easy to relocate to teach English abroad because you need to have legal documents, mm-hmm. and we are not members of EU, okay. so unfortunately, no. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be here, though. It could yeah. be somewhere else. Yeah. yeah, China. For example, a girl, a girl of mine um, actually invited me to come to Egypt and try teaching there. She said that uh, you would be a very popular teacher because in Egypt, uh, the level of English okay. and English teaching is quite low. Okay. Well, that's a good, I, it depends, of yeah. course, on the school or, and the city. You, can, on you can't use Quizlet there because they have bad internet. Uh. <laughs> no, and I think in all of Egypt? In big cities, they have good internet. <laughs> in Egypt. What is... Uh, English level in Ukraine, I guess that's another the last question. I'll leave it there and then we'll let, you, let you go. No, you're no. the one. In, no, in general, of, of, the, yes. of the citizens. Of, of the if you were citizens. looking at the, I know it's a big general question, but if we look at all you know, Ukrainian. Pre intermediate? Pre intermediate, I guess. Okay. In big cities, people speak English quite a lot, but if you go to a village or a town, no. Yeah, okay. Like basic. And no ageism, but young people speak English better than. Yeah. Elderly? It's a trend usually yeah. over, across the world, right? We, yeah. We're from Canada, we, we teach there, and we used to have, and not because anything has changed, but in a previous school that I worked at, we had lots of Ukrainian students coming. In Canada? In Canada, yeah. Lots of, lots, lots. For, they would come to study for, you know, they're between 18 and 25, I would say, yeah. coming for university, yeah, yeah. and then to return, I imagine, after they finish, but mm-hmm. to study there, but doing English first because There's a big they need Ukrainian for, community in Canada. Yes, yes, there is. There's a there festival. There's a Ukrainian, yeah, There's a Ukrainian yeah, festival. Yeah, yeah, yeah. big time, big time. <laughs> Amazing food. <laughs> Amazing food. Right. <laughs> and Ukrainian weather, I think, is very similar to Canadian weather. It's very cold. Um, uh, no. no, it's mild. No? It's mild? It's not cold. Not too okay. much snow. We have all seasons. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Canada has winter and not winter. That's what we have. (laughs) (laughs) All right, ladies, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Hi, my name is Yasmin. I'm from Iran. And right now you're listening to Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast. Just to go back to the quote, um, again, he was referring back to the production stage, the the last P, and he said that no real learning can actually be assumed to have taken place until the students are actually able to use the language for themselves. So my question to both of you is, what makes a good production stage? 
I believe you guys are probably going to say that it's more than just simple practice. I think it's it's a it's something as you said as it was something that's meaningful, right? So it's something that uh, I don't want to say force, but encourages them to draw on the knowledge mm. or the language that we've taught and to reproduce it in a way that's authentic. Um, so be it through, you know, discussion activities or a task where they're required to work within a team and the task itself would hopefully uh, elicit a lot of the language that we have taught in order to complete the task. And uh, rather than just say a, a close activity, which can be a task, but but a uh, rather than just some display knowledge, they're actually asked to to engage in the language um, rather than just go through, say, a set of 10 questions using the present perfect or simple past. Which is normally what we find in textbooks and syllabi. But is that even right? Like, is that even free practice? Because if you ask someone to talk about what they have done, they would probably say one sentence in what they have done. And then they would go back to simple past to talk about the rest of it. So it's not actually generating yeah. what you want. And it's probably, again, it's probably quite surface level and maybe mm -hmm. not that meaningful. Uh, maybe they don't want to talk about what they've done because they've, you know, it has been painful yeah. for them. Uh, so again, it's, it's, you know, it's, that's, that's the reality of being a teacher. It's the hardest thing is choosing a, an appropriate task. Right. But, um, but you're right. Yeah, I, I would I would agree with that. That's what most textbooks. That's how most textbooks frame the practice the practice stage. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, that's that's obviously the flaw with textbooks. But I think it's it's a flaw or, or a drawback that we all have in, in no matter what we teach. You know, we've said this before that in in the EAP context, EAP classroom, um, we have an advantage in that the tasks that we create or ask them to do, at least we know that the purpose or the meaningfulness is there. Um, doesn't mean that they'll be engaged per se, but if they're in an EAP classroom, the assumption on our part is that they're using that for their you know, post-secondary studies. If that's not the classroom, it becomes really, really hard as a teacher to create a task that mm -hmm. fits or will be meaningful contextually um, for 14, 16 different individuals with potentially um, different contexts and different reasons for being there. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the, I think that's one of the drawbacks. And I had this conversation with Neil in our previous podcast, where the biggest issue with this presentation methodology is that it's based on this core belief that out of accuracy, in this case, the competence comes fluency, the doing right. In what we what we like about this is why we are you know, forceful proponents of a task-based methodology is because it is based on this belief that out of fluency comes accuracy and that learning is often um, prompt and refined by, by the need to communicate. And I think this is something that Willis um, used to say. And this is why, and Mike, we've talked about this in our TBLT um, presentation, this is why the best tasks are the ones designed in, in such a way that they actually require communication. Students are working together to reach a very concrete outcome. Like they're solving problems, they're they're negotiating meaning, they're they're creating something, right? 
Yeah, I think need is the key word there, right? Mm-hmm. Like, for example, and I think I'd just go back to the earlier example of, you know, talking about your life experiences. There's no mm-hmm. need to re- to reproduce the present perfect tense in many of those situations, yes. right? <laughs> <laughs> I hope, I hope you not. Could, you can talk about all the experiences you've had. Oh, oh the, and the, and maybe use the present perfect you know, once or twice in the entire conversation. So, right. um, you, yeah, so... Yeah, yeah, I think need is a key word. And I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, Neil, Neil, you made some great points in that podcast. Yeah. Oh, so yeah, there, there were two researchers in Canada, sorry, two researchers in Canada, Gat Bonson and Sigalowitz, who identified a number of criteria for what makes a good production stage. So basically, they said that activities should be designed to allow learners to experience some of the normal psychological pressures felt by people engaged in real communication. One of the criteria which interests me is that they said activities should be designed, these are production activities, should be designed to allow the learners to experience some of the normal psychological pressures felt by people engaged in real communication. And what does that mean, the normal psychological pressures? So my question to both of you is, what do you think some of these normal psychological pressures um, are? My example would be us doing the podcast right now or anytime we do a podcast. We don't really, you know, we prepare it just like we would teach. I think we prepare, you know, what we're going to talk about, but not the words that we're going to choose Uh when we Uh speak. So um, lots like, you know, we say um, uh, all the time. And that's probably annoying to listen to if you're listening to the podcast. But it's because (laughs) we don't know the word. We're trying to think of the perfect (laughs) word to say. And that's normal, and that's a psychological pressure that we don't apply to. We don't think about it like that because our language level is so high. But in another level, another language, sorry, that is something that's important. I was going to say this before, but I'm going to say it now. I think there's a lot of impatience in language learning from the teacher perspective and from the learner perspective to get it right almost immediately. And that's not how it works, right? What Mike said earlier, that if the teacher is taught complex sentences, they assume the teachers or the students in one exposure, have acquired it. And on the learner perspective, yes. if they make a mistake, uh, they get discouraged because they think that they're doing it wrong. But that's not yes. how it works, of course. And so psychological stress for me is word choice or structure mm-hmm. choice or utterance choice or whatever, all of these yes. things. And you need to think about what you need to say, and that's normal and it's okay. Well, one of the things, of course, we all know about using language, a second language, uh, is that uh, it's not always in ideal circumstances. We're often in situations where we don't have much time to plan what we're going to say, where we may not fully understand what people are saying to us, where uh, we may be in a situation of uh, anxiety or stress. So not all language use is all happy, clappy, you know, take your time, and that's what they mean about the normal psychological. Pressure. Sure. And then there's all the other things that go along with communication, right? Like uh, turn taking. When should I yes. speak? Should I speak? And is it appropriate to speak right now? Uh, <laughs> how long should I wait? Oh, my gosh. Should I wait too long to finish that sentence? Yes. You know, they're, they're all the kind of norms of uh, of just day to day communication. Yeah. 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 You don't have all the, you don't always have the ideal circumstances. It's like Andrew said, there's not enough time for you to plan. Um, sometimes we don't fully understand what is what is being said to us, as you said, Mike and Andrew, feeling anxiety, stressed, and again, moving away from this idea that everything is always happy and clappy and fun, standing on their feet, things like that. Um, 
So yeah, I think we need to add a little bit of this pressure mm -hmm. um, in in when dealing with um, language in the production stage. People need to be apart from anything else. They need to be standing on their feet. There's so many things we do in the classroom with language. The students are doing sitting down. Uh, I I know it's not always easy to have students moving around, but uh, the fact that if you can get two students up in front of the class to do a dialogue or perform a role play is so much more different than doing it in pairs or in groups at all at the same time. The psychological pressure is quite high. Just to go back to the, uh, to the research, what they basically said is that activities should be genuinely communicative. That's number one. They have to be psychologically authentic, um, focused, uh, formulaic, again, focusing on chunks of language, and more importantly, and this is something that I want us to talk a little bit about now, is they are inherently repetitive. Again, going back to the idea of task repetition. Mm -hmm. Well, I just one more point, if I can, about uh, you know, understanding what other people have said, and that's something that we take for granted, and, and we, we don't do that all the time either. We always ask for repetition, at least I do. I ask for repetition when I talk to anybody. Sorry, so what you mean is, so what you're saying, yeah. you know, and we this came up in class last week and I think we saw Leo a talk in Barcelona with Richard Caldwell on Connected Speech and he had this example of can and can't, right? Right. This is, this is Randy, Randy Newman who best known for his Toy Story film music. You've got a friend in me. In terms of writing, I can give you advice. In terms of writing, I can give you advice. In, in natural speech, we almost, as native or proficient speakers, almost never hear yeah. if it's can or can't. We From context, we usually understand, but actually that's one where I find myself almost always asking for repetition because I have no idea what people say, mm. if it's positive or negative in that case. Yeah. So it is normal. It is, it is natural. I was convinced when I first heard it that it was what we Brits would, it would be calmed. <laughs> but after like a fair bit of research, I, I'm now convinced of the opposite. <laughs> that he, 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 he's, he intends what we Brits would say, um, can. In terms of writing, I can give you advice. I put this out for a vote on a discussion group. <laughs> and 11 people vote, voted for can. Six people voted for can't, and one person voted don't know. Can yeah. you hear me? Yes. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah. No, honestly, <laughs> we were just talking, I was just thinking about now, because I'm thinking about the PPP. Basically, you present the language, and you spend a lot of time on the knowing and very little on the doing. And as you said, um, Andrew, um, they only have one, one attempt. It's the, it's the production stage. And if they get it wrong, Again, we're emphasizing the idea that language is more of a product. So you're looking at languages as a product of learning, not so much as the process of learning. So mm -hmm. is your first attempt usually the best attempt? Hell no. Like, no think about writing. Not. Is your first draft your best writing? My first attempt at anything is never the best. Let's just put that. Right <laughs> <laughs> never. But I think that's the tie my shoes the twice. Everything, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We place that burden on our students, right? You yes, know, here, yes, here, absolutely. We taught you to use it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So this whole performance-based uh, approach, I like Thornbury's uh, talk. What I thought was very good, Leo. I think you liked it as well. 
and it kind of inspired me to create uh, a new segment for the show, if you guys will indulge me. Well, now you're asking me to do something for the first time. That's right. Don't expect any miracles. So as we... uh, Got to wrap up here today. I've got something that's called rapid fire. You guys ready? Let's do it. So your task is this. I'm going to give you a a situation and each of you are going to give me about a 30 second answer on what you think. Okay. Mm, Okay. Okay. So the first one, uh, let's see, Leo, let's you can lead off with this one. Okay. So here we go. What happens first? Textbooks become obsolete or language schools become obsolete? I don't know, man. That's a good question. That's a tough one. I am gonna go. I think I'm gonna go with textbooks, even though I think that language schools would not survive without (laughs) textbooks. So it's chicken, chicken and the egg here. That's the conundrum that we have. Um, I would say textbooks. I think, I think eventually we could get schools to move away from textbooks and incorporate more of a of a, a, a synthetic syllabus that emphasizes the the use of tasks, the doing part of learning. Mike, I'm going to go the other end. I'm going to say this is the day and age of, you know, technology, learner autonomy. Um, People want that quick solution. I'm going to say people start studying by themselves. They rely on textbooks, maybe not in physical form, maybe online digital form. And schools learn how to adapt to that. Uh But how would they adapt to that? That's my question now. They wouldn't. I think that you would see. You would see. I. I think you would see more language consultants, mm. not so language coaches. language coaches. There you go. Right. Okay. okay. This is becoming unrapid fire, but here we go. This is okay. <laughs> number two. <laughs> I was under thirty seconds. <laughs> uh, okay, so Mike, you can start with this one. Okay. Agree right. or disagree? The biggest hurdle to the rise of performance-based and task repetition teaching is learners not recognizing them as valid learning approaches. Disagree. Okay. Disagree. I think the problem is with the schools. I go back to what Leo's saying, I think, about um, about language schools. I think the biggest hurdle is is perhaps a, a, an over-dependence on the part of teachers or maybe a blind faith in the, in the PPP. And I think it's a great way, especially if you're a new teacher, it gives you something to latch on to. But I, I really think um, I, 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 I've never heard students complain about a task that engaged them. Mm-hmm. I, but I have heard a lot mm-hmm. of students complain about a task that they were unable to perform uh, because they felt they hadn't been properly prepared. So I'm going to say teachers need to adjust and the students will follow. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to I'm going to go with I'm going to go with Mike on this one, especially because I think the role of the role of the teacher will will never disappear as long as we are able to become more reactive and interpret performance in in a similar in the, in the way that um, Vygotsky sees uh, learning again the idea of the importance the, the idea of learning through interaction and learn with the help of someone who is perhaps more experienced or slightly better than you so learning becomes more um, or learning takes place in this social context, this idea of, of um, having someone who is assisting you so you can eventually do something independently. And I think that's the role of teachers there. Right. And I think students, especially adult learners, are able to recognize that, Leo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Therefore, 
as long as they can see the value in whatever approach you're using, they'll be fine. Okay, number three, uh, fill in the blank. This one should be short. If teachers want to get ahead on the next wave in ELT, they should blank. They should teach reactively. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. And they should learn to be able to provide assistance, assistance at specific points at which the student's performance will require that specific assistance. So, um, again, thinking about um, I'm helping my son learning how to ride a bike, for example. That's that's just one. I'm not there with him all the time, but I'm I'm helping him. I'm supporting him so he can actually um, do it on his own. So reacting rather than just telling him the rules, knowing how to ride a bike. All right. Yeah, I'd can I'd agree with Leo on that one. I tweak it a little bit. I would say understanding the students' needs mm. and how to address them. Just because, again, I I go back to what I said earlier about textbooks. I think the few in the future we will see uh, a greater focus on on me on the the need the student as an individual. I think that we're starting to develop ourselves to be more reflective and to focus on our own needs. And I think as teachers, going back to what Leo said, it's up to us to um, to to build that connection with our students so that we know what their needs are, so that then we can address them. In this in this case, uh, finding out what language they need to learn and to find out where the gaps are and then address those. And last one, here we go. Uh, name the biggest reason, at least in terms of curriculum, that language is still treated as knowledge rather than a skill. Hmm. I think we talked about this. It's the mm-hmm. idea, of, it's what sells, right? Uh, knowing the competence sells and the doing doesn't because in the minds of a lot of people, if you walk to a recruiter or, or someone involved, like uh, those agents, for example, um, most of them would probably say, oh, your school doesn't have a textbook. Your school doesn't have a curriculum. All you guys have uh, are tasks. I don't think students will want to study there because they don't have anything. You can't sell, you can't sell the performance, but you can sell the competence because that's the structural syllabus. It's much easier to sell textbooks, to sell the idea that learners are going to be learning something but we in fact we know they're not going to be learning much um is easier than just focusing on the performance yeah Mm. yeah i I would agree i think um in terms of like when we think of general so for example general english Mm. uh for general purposes that's that's very much the case i i would argue that it's not so much the case if you look at uh, esp english for specific purposes eap Mm. and again it's just because there are some certain themes or functions that are kind of universal within those uh, disciplines or, or, or sorry, uh, fields um, huh. that uh, that they need. But it's harder to do that with um, with uh, general English. I mean, one way that it has been addressed is through content-based language teaching. But uh, but again, then you have to still find a place for language and focus on uh, form. So we'll see. Yeah, it's a, it's a, no, it's it's a hard sell. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's, it is. It's a hard sell because um, we've had this experience, you know, just as in our own company, right? Like yeah. we've had this experience where where we have our style and our approach, and and uh, there are students or prospective students who who do like that synthetic syllabus. But uh, mm. but again, that's not our that's not how we approach language learning and language acquisition, and so um, that's 
that's a balance that we kind of have to strike with our own company and our own schools. I, I have a question for both of you. My rapid fire question: Can we, what mm -hmm. is general English when students, when every student in a classroom has a different need? Would you still call that general English? <laughs> well, there you go. Right. That's that's just it. That's why it goes back to what I was saying about a needs based syllabus, right, or being able to respond to needs. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think it just means non-specific, right? Because we have English -specific. for specific purposes, and then what if it's not that? What is it? I guess that's what we call general English. But that's the, as Leo you said, and, and Mike you said, that's the hard part. I mean, my my biggest pet, my biggest pet peeve about these training courses, or I used to teach them, or still do, is you know, oh, you have to meet the needs of your students. You have to know what your students need, and they would just, and that's where it would stop. Nobody would say, yeah, but how do you do that when you have seventeen people in the room? If you teach at a language school, at least in Canada, you've got probably out of 17 people, you've got 12 different nationalities. You've got a variety of age ranges and people are coming in and out of your classes every few days. So uh, it's, it's different see, tough. levels, right? Yeah. There is one thing a lot of students would agree on. I know they will probably have different needs, but a lot of them would say, I want to be able to communicate in the language. And that's where we should. Mm -hmm. This is why I think in order for us to focus learners this is why I think we need to focus learners more on the doing part of learning, which allows yeah. them a more accurate measurement of, of their language proficiency, right? Yeah. As opposed to the, the knowing part. Um, yes. What's well, learning by so, doing? And right? many of them, many of them choose to come to Canada for that specific reason, right? Yes. I've learned yes. by every home country for my entire life, and I still can't use the language. That's right. right. They've done the knowing. They've done the competence part. They want to perform. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely. But we have to have a textbook to sell them that course. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of funny. Yeah. Well, that was we, we've kind of answered. That was I, I did I skipped this one because I thought <laughs> the answer was already given. But basically, my other question was, who do textbooks help the most? Learners, teachers, or schools? I think we're clearly saying it's the schools, right? And the teachers to a certain extent. Yeah. I think the teachers to a certain extent. Um, sure, and 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 learners as well. I mean, let's let's be honest. It's. It, it's. I'd be interested, Leo. I know Leo has a an interview coming up with Patsy Lightbound. I'd be interested in to hear her opinion in terms of the role of textbooks. But I think oh. you know there are benefits Good of question. having a textbook for learners, mm -hmm. teachers, and of course schools. For schools, I mean, it's it's kind of it's it's obviously maybe more to, to put a cynical twist on it. It's a little bit more yeah. financially driven, or it gives them a nice way to frame their course when they're selling it. But for teachers, yeah, I think that there is a, there is support for teachers, but there also is support for students in some regards. But they're not the only way to learn a language, and they also um, can can uh, can take away from the learning experience as well. So well, that, yeah. Maybe Sorry. we'll pin that, and that can be an entire podcast just by itself because that's a, that's a juicy yeah. topic. Yeah, it is, yeah. All right. Yeah. Final thoughts, guys? I don't. I don't really have much more to say. I wanted to jump into task repetition, but I think we can save that for another podcast. We can repeat, repeat the task. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we should repeat the task. <laughs> well, I wanted to bring up the our next uh, Teacher Talking Time podcast um, guest. The upcoming guest yeah. is going to be, as Mike said, um, Dr. Patsy Lightbound. And if people have questions that they would like to ask, they could definitely send us an email, info at learnyourenglish.com. They can use our Twitter account. And uh, yeah, please send us your questions, and we will uh, we'll ask away. Sounds great. Uh, when when is that? When is that coming up? It's uh, next week. I'm interviewing her. Okay, yeah. June 
eleventh or twelfth, something next week. Yeah, it's it's June if you're listening in 2022. Yeah. You've missed it, so too bad. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so yeah, we'll end it there, I suppose. Thanks, guys. Uh, as you know, this episode was inspired by. Sorry, Mike, go ahead. No, I just went. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I just wanted to say thank you. <laughs> that's right. That's, that'll go in the blooper reel. That's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so as you know, this episode was inspired by uh, Scott Thornberry's talk that Leo and I had the fortune of, of going to and attending in Barcelona this year. And uh, just as an ending of the show, we'll sign off by going back, uh, listening to Leo. And I, at the end of the trip, and you might notice that we sound slightly less energetic than we did at the beginning of the trip. We did a lot of learning, didn't we, Leo? Yes. Performance, according to Thornbury. Maybe performance is learning, right? I think it is. It absolutely yeah. is. Here, here. So we'll sign off there, guys. Thanks, guys. That was great. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Yeah. All right. Good morning, Leo morning Andrew today is Sunday February I don't even know man. I'm not even sure February 10th February 10th yes all right it's pretty early here the conference has ended we've done a whirlwind four or five days here in Barcelona and uh, I'm feeling pretty tired to be honest with you yes yes no sleep um, a lot sleep. of learning but a lot of learning a lot of learning yes and uh, I guess our voices reflect that. Absolutely. This is how my voice sounds when I've done a lot of learning. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but let's do some reflection here as we, we contemplate. It's fresh in our minds. And before, as one of the talks yesterday talked about, before we lose our momentum, mm-hmm. um, a lot a lot of learning, a lot of great information over the last couple of days. What are some standout things for you that you'll take away or you are taking away from IH Barcelona? 2019. I think there were two sessions in particular. The first one was one. Um, it was the one with uh, Sean Sweeney and Sophie Wright, who talked about um, teacher development and how to go from um, compliance to uh, compliance to agency. And I think I think it's a long way. I think it's a long way to go from getting teachers to be, you know, in charge of their own development. Um, especially because the majority of teachers will come up with excuses for not developing themselves, such as I don't have enough time, or am I getting paid for this? Um, I, I thought the, to- the, 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 the talk was really, um, it was more of a case study, as you said earlier. And uh, I think there were a lot, a lot of uh, lessons to be learned from that. Yeah, I mean, I, that was a big one for us as well. I mean, that was really interesting for me, I'm sure you as well, because it was almost like they were showing us what we're trying to do with Learn Your English and what other mm-hmm. companies have tried to do and and the, the pitfalls or the, the troubles that they've had getting, not say getting teachers, but, but trying to encourage professionals mm-hmm. in the industry to further their development and it's really interesting and it's not about what we learned later, not really about teachers necessarily, but about people, yes. about, the, about human psychology and we went on to see George George's talk after that. Mm-hmm. Uh, George Pickering, yes. George Pickering, and and he was talking about goal setting and mindset mm-hmm. and stick to itiveness. What we've you know we've talked about in previous yes. podcasts and and why I mean teaching conference, but it was not teaching specific. It was people specific, mm-hmm. and why you know making what he called smart goals is the way to go, as opposed to just telling yourself that you're going to do something without actually putting a plan into action. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think that's the idea. I think it's the problem with most teachers is they, they really, I think it's going back to the session from, uh, from Sean, the one about compliance to agency. Teachers want to develop. They do have the intention to develop, but I think that having the intention is not sufficient. I think you need to have a systematic plan for your development. You need to know what you're going to be reading every day. You need to know um, what you're going to be doing with those readings. How are you going to apply that in the classroom? You might need to have some sort of, of a journal where you reflect on your teaching and, and, and uh, find that what teachers are lacking is it's the, it's the system. They have the intention, they have the desire, they set the goal, but they don't have what George calls lead measure, which is how am I going to go and do this? Like you, like you said, um, you want to lose weight, you want to lose, let's say, 10, 10 pounds. Yeah. 10 pounds, but again. We're in Britain, or when you're up to 10 kilos. 10 kilos, yes. So you want to lose 10 kilos. Um, it's great to say that, but how are you going to do that? So the lead measure for him was to do high-intensity interval training every day for about until he reached you about said 15 minutes. 15 right? minutes, yeah. yes, yeah. So that and was and then 10,000 10, steps a day. Yeah. Those two things together, five times a week. I think he said that, yeah. and that's how he reached his goal, right? I think that's it. And I think we, you know, we don't want to keep saying that teachers don't, teachers lack. They don't. And we've seen this. We've seen why you've had some success as a company. We've, why we've had success as teachers is we, we want to learn. Teachers do want to learn. We've seen that that conference we had. There was 800 people there yeah. or something. They all want to learn. Um, I think as people, as humans, no matter what your, our job is, we we lack the drive. Not that we lack the the, the, the follow through. Yeah. yeah. On on those plans. Yeah. And then George set out uh, his acronym SMARTS to help people fulfill those those goals and fulfill those dreams. Uh, do you remember what the acronym stands for? Um, specific, measurable, specific, uh, measurable. attainable, mm -hmm. retainable, reliable, mm -hmm. and time-bound. Time-bound, that's yeah. right. My favorite yeah. quote from that, maybe the whole the whole week was, someday is not a day of the week. Yes. Do it on Sunday or Monday or Sunday and Monday or whatever. Don't say someday. But you know, specify an actual day and time that you're going to do this, and then stick to it. Mm -hmm. Whether it's working out, the gym, or teacher teacher development. Yeah. The same thing, right? Yeah. And then, what's the last one? We had a third one that we wanted to talk about. Um, well. I think it was uh, from Angie Angie Mulderis, mm -hmm. who um, we actually interviewed. We and did. We're probably going to have a podcast on on her interview. We definitely will. Um, she talked about systemic, informed, reflective practice. And she talked about teacher learnacy, which to me is, a, is an interesting term. Um, how basically what what can teachers do um, after they go to a conference? Because the biggest issue with conferences is that you go and you learn, but a lot of teachers don't really know how to implement a lot of the ideas that they that they've acquired in doing those two days of a conference into their classroom. And then they wait maybe a week or two. And then we all know what happens after a week or two. You just go back into your regular routine and then you forget about implementing right. all these ideas. Well, it goes back to the SMART goals, right? So I think I love this conference because everything was kind of intertwined and everything was connected. And you could see from, okay, from Angie's talk, okay, but then George, George's philosophies apply here. And then in another talk, oh, the Angie's thing applies here as well. And mm. I mean, it was really fantastic for me to learn. And it's obvious over here, you know, and everywhere that we've been. Teachers want to learn. Teachers want to get better. Yeah. We want to get better. I, I feel like I'm a lot better for having been here 
and I'm going to make some smart goals for myself to implement and stick to all the, the goals that I've made <laughs> over here so that I, I practice what, what I'm preaching. Yes. Uh, and I'm going to hold you accountable. That's what you're talking about, an accountability buddy. So I'm going to hold you accountable, and I want you to hold me accountable as well. And I love that. I love the concept of accountability. This. Yeah. I th it goes back to, just to end this in a, on a positive note, I think what teachers, you said this, but teachers do want to develop. Teachers do want to learn. They just don't know how to hold themselves accountable and accountability is not something that it only relates to teacher it's it relates to human nature mm -hmm. humans are by nature not accountable they're only accountable when they have some sort of external or extrinsic motivation in that case and that goes back to the talk by Ferran Velasco mm -hmm. who talked about intrinsic motivation and extrinsic motivation and how can how managers can help teachers feel more that's fascinating stuff and don't have to give too much away but yeah basically money being extrinsic and and the job can if that's your only motivation then your job isn't meaningful yes it's what he would say yeah and I think that's fascinating we're gonna do a whole mini podcast series learn your English Barcelona series coming up once I get some sleep and get my editing hat on um, so not to talk too much about it you know, going through each of the talks and all the interviews that we conducted and with teachers from all around the world and speakers, of course. Um, but I think those are some pretty good takeaways as we sit here trying to wake up and having some coffee here on a Sunday morning in Barcelona. Uh, this was a fantastic trip, Leo. Yes. Uh, I hope we can do this. And let's make it a smart goal to do this every year. Every year. And every to year go out more. And, and I think, not to be you know corny, but I think the, the best thing about this conference, and this is my first one in Europe. I've never been to a conference in Europe before is just being in that atmosphere and being around hundreds of other teachers who are passionate about learning and about what they do and about their own learning, but also imparting that learning with their students, of course, which is why we do it, mm -hmm. right? So that was really infectious and I'm pretty motivated and Good. happy to have been here. I hope you feel the same. Remember, you just have to implement that as soon as you get back, because if you wait, you will lose that momentum. All right, well, we're not going to wait, except for the flight, which is a bit delayed here. Other than that, we'll see you back on the other side. Yeah. You've been listening to Teacher Talking Time, brought to you by Learn Your English. Ready to take control of your education? You're in the right place. Teaching, professional development, learning. Expand your world with Learn Your English.